I find most investigations that are done um, professionally, I would say they are extremely unreadable. Major stories are not being told properly, they're not being visualized properly. The West uh, of uh, uh, Donald Trump, of Brexit, of Kaczynski brothers, of uh, Orban, of Salvini in Italy, cannot be a role model. And of course, of course, what, what Russia produces traditionally, historically, is, is really grotesque. It is a very grotesque image of what later happens in the West. Howdy, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Russia Guy, the podcast where I talk to interesting and influential figures in Russia-focused journalism, academia, and activism. I am your host, Kevin Rothrock, and on this show, I interview people about trending news stories, the overarching themes of Russia watching, and the ins and outs of life as a professional in this field. This show is supported by listeners like you at patreon.com backslash Kevin Rothrock, that's me, where you can contribute as much or as little of your hard-earned money as you like. Thank you very much to my active patrons. There are currently 25 of you. That's just great. I love that. Thank you so much. My guest today is journalist Leonid Ragozin, who now writes often for Al Jazeera and has worked in the past for many years for the BBC, Russian Newsweek, The Guardian, and many other outlets, reporting on Russia and Ukraine mostly. He is also author of The Lonely Planet Guides to Moscow, Ukraine, and several other places across Eastern Europe. Earlier this month, he wrote an article titled, Putin Risks Losing Moscow, which is something we talked about in addition to his career in journalism and tourist guides. And we finished with a discussion about whether or not Moscow's opposition protesters are a flash in the pan or perhaps a sign of a coming backlash against rising right-wing populism in the West. That and more in the interview. Now, here it is. How does somebody go from geology to journalism? Because this is, if I'm correct, this is, this is your path. Is that right? It goes back to um, the events in Belize in 1989 when I was still at school. And um, everybody at school and in Moscow, everybody was uh, talking about um, military dictatorship, that Gorbachev is going to be um, toppled by a coup. And the coup was, was the buzzword at the time. And, uh, and at that point, uh, despite uh, everything pointing towards me uh, becoming a, a historian or a journalist or going into humanitarian science, um, I, I decided to become the um, uh, generation of, uh, uh, in Boris Grebenshikov's words, uh, generation of uh, guards and um, janitors. <laughs> Basically not to take any, uh, any humanitarian profession because that was connected to um, ideological compromise. So I chose uh, geology, which was also my father's profession. And uh, I spent um, I spent many summers with my dad in uh, geological expeditions. And so you're doing this at what age, roughly? Well, I, I think my, my first expedition was when I was uh, eight. And uh, there were uh, three or four more expeditions later. And I also traveled with my aunt, who was a, a paleontologist. I, I, I like traveling, basically. So, so I was, I was chosen, I was chosen a profession uh, that uh, deals with uh, travel. And once I became a geologist, my specialization was uh, beach dynamics, which is the study of how the beach uh, advances and retreats. And that again was just because I <laughs> like to spend time on the beach. 
really. Uh, so, no, I never worked as a geologist and uh, um, I did a second major in English language in the Moscow University when it became possible. Uh, and uh, my first job was with a, an Australian gold mining company that um, hired me as a, essentially as a translator who understands geology. And then I uh, drifted uh, gradually over the 90s from, uh, from geology, in which I never worked, uh, into translation jobs and then into the BBC uh, monitoring, which is half translation, half journalism. And how did you start? How did you arrive at the BBC? Like, what was the, the door that opened for you there? In, in the BBC, it was just um, an ad in a newspaper. I believe it was actually, I got a job in the BBC through newspaper ads twice. Uh, once in the BBC monitoring, I believe it was in the Moscow Times. And the second time uh, it was in the BBC Russian service. And that was uh, via um, Izvestia newspaper, which was a very different newspaper at the time. So the BBC used to advertise in Izvestia? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> Uh-huh. That's hard to believe. But again, again, it was a very different epoch. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and so if I understand correctly, you've worked for both Russian language and English language media outlets. Is that right? Uh, in the BBC, you mean? Well, I don't know. All across the board. Some of the outlets you've worked for have, have been Russian language. Is that right? Or have they all been English language? Well, it's, it's, uh, it was mostly, it was mostly English, but I, I spent some years in the BBC Russian service which was in Russian. And, and I also spent four years as a foreign correspondent for the Russian edition of Newsweek, which was an exciting job, which took me to places like... Was that when, when, when Fishman was running it? Uh, well, I had uh, three different editors. I had uh, Parfionov, who was my first editor, uh, and uh, then Vishnipolsky and then Fishman. So that was, that was my golden epoch, because I could uh, travel to places like Bhutan, Ecuador, Kenya, Australia, all around the world. Is it, is it different... To report for English speakers than it is to report for Russian speakers? Did, did you find that those jobs to be very different or does it not really matter? Um, it used to be different. Uh, it, it is, uh, I would say it is less different now when uh, the whole media space is much more globalized and people essentially speak in the same language, even though they use different languages. They're using the same uh, language of the internet, of, uh, you know, memes and trollings uh, and uh, all that stuff. But um, the expectations of the audience were slightly different. And uh, when I was in the Russian Newsweek, uh, people were kind of uh, in the mood of um, exploring the world and the political situation in Russia during Medvedev's presidency was not nearly as tense. So um, we did stuff on the verge between, between political reportage and uh, National Geographic reportage. And I guess that's what uh, National Geographic itself uh, came to eventually. <laughs> Uh, so uh, telling telling people about uh, countries they don't really understand, but also explaining the political situation there and the current political story. And is that similar to the kind of work you say you do for the Lonely Planet guides? Or do you view that as an entirely sort of separate and different pursuit? No, the Lonely Planet is, is very different. Uh, it was my dream to work for the Lonely Planet back in the 90s. I actually used to sell Lonely Planet guides in Moscow. I worked for a travel agency for, for a couple of years, uh, which uh, sold interrail tickets, um, youth hostel cards, and Lonely Planet guides. So it was, it was a bit of a miracle that I actually managed to become uh, possibly the only Russian author in the Lonely Planet pool. There are, there are some people who, who were born in Russia, but they are British or Americans. But I believe I'm the only actually Russian national there. For people that are thinking about breaking into this, this whole field of, of either, either really 
Russian journalism or travel journalism or travel writing? Is this something that, I mean, you're still doing it, obviously. Is it something that you recommend to young people who are thinking, you know, young professionals or people in school that are thinking about getting into this kind of work? Is that something you'd recommend to people? And if you would, how would you say they should break into the field? I would, of course, uh, recommend it because this is, this is what people need information and um, impartial and objective information. On the other hand, uh, it will be a very strong word of warning because uh, I would formulate it this way. If they want to go into journalism in order to reinvent this whole world of journalism, then yes, that's, uh, that program is, is ambitious enough. If they want to build themselves into this um, existing uh, world of journalism, then uh, at least for me, it's, it's, it's just not, it's not ambitious enough. It's not, uh, it's, it's something that will, um, make them live a life of full of, uh, really bright expectations, but uh, probably not to arrive uh, to, to fulfilling them. So they, you should, you only recommend, they should only get into the field if they intend to revolutionize it? No, no, I, I'd say, uh, uh journalism is obviously in a, in a major crisis. And crisis, crisis is always, um, a time of great opportunities. This is the time when you can invent uh, something new, the new rules, the new institutions, the new outlets in terms of um, in terms of media outlets. So yes, if you have that uh, that in mind, then yes. If you want to emulate um, the journalism of the old times, uh, if you want to be uh, you know Hemingway, if you want to be. Uh, if you have some role models among journalism in the 70s, in the 90s, uh, then no, uh, it doesn't work. You have to invent something entirely new. Do you have any examples of, can you think of anyone today that embodies the new journalism that you're thinking of? Or it hasn't been invented yet? No, I'm not sure, actually. I, I'm seeing attempts at doing that. And we have, uh, we have uh, loads of new media emerging. For the age of internet, for the age of social networks, I'm not seeing any role model there. I'm seeing patterns, I'm seeing things that could work. I'm not really seeing a, an outlet I'd be dreaming to work for in the way I saw different um, media outlets and, and the Lonely Planet as well as, as, as my dream jobs back in the 90s. Speaking of social media, how do you divide kind of the work you do for articles and what you put, say, on Twitter? Because I, I mean, I, I find that a lot of the stuff that you read in articles, it works, sometimes it works better as tweets, right? And it seems to resonate more with people on Twitter. But Twitter is sort of specific, right? Because it has, for it's something to be successful, it generally needs to have like a bit of attitude almost. Like it's not quite, doesn't have the same tone necessarily that an article would. And I wonder, do you find it difficult to balance what you're going to direct towards social media and what you're going to put into your kind of like, you know, byline work, or does it just happen naturally for you? Or how do you think about those two different outlets for, for journalism? Well, my, uh, my attitude to Twitter, which is, which is important in my work, has been changing over years uh, since I discovered it. In the beginning, um, especially when I, when I quit uh, the BBC and decided to go freelance, that coincided with the Ukrainian crisis. And that essentially happened in the way that... Um, I quit the BBC to, in order to do the Lonely Planet uh, to Ukraine. And I was traveling in Ukraine in 2013. And then uh, my dance started and I, I realized that I'm not going back to the BBC and uh, I want to go freelance because that was, 
that was easier. So at that point, uh, Twitter was the engine that was bringing editors to me. I was, I was being noticed, especially, especially at the beginning of my down when I was uh, pretty much uh, one of, one of very few people who was uh, tweeting in English uh, from Kiev. And then also in the, um, in the April of 2014, when there were uh, journalists in Donetsk, but also not so many, and uh, quite a few media outlets in the West were desperate to get somebody to write for them. So yeah, on, on some days I was, I was getting messages from every media outlet I, uh, I've ever <laughs> dreamt of working for. So that was, that was quite useful in terms of uh, promoting yourself. At some point, I was entertaining the idea of being kind of a one uh, a one man um, media, and I was also exploring the uh, limitations of of doing that. And I, I guess I I've reached them. So working on Twitter, of course, your your uh, main dilemma is that uh, you on Twitter you need to express a lot of opinion. You really need to be very opinionated in order to be noticed, and that clashes with your um, core. Journalist, because uh, as a journalist, you you actually want to be in, inconspicuous, and you want to be um, you you try to stay away from uh, arguments. I was experimenting with this and that, and I I spent um, I think I spent uh, I haven't spent fifteen years as a, as a journalist who was very um, very sensitive to the requirements of editors and owners of the media towards uh, the use of social media, towards being very uh, uh, careful on the social media. It was, it was, it was a bad for me because I was, I was really bursting with opinion. And uh, after those years, and uh, I guess I'm still bursting with it. So yeah, I was, uh, I was exploring the, uh, the media landscape. Yeah. The, uh, I was exploring the audiences, the reaction of the audiences. I was also exploring myself. So it was, um, uh, it was and continues to be a psychological experiment. The ultimate goal is uh, to, to be ultimately, ultimately impartial and objective because you actually can be that even if you come across as really opinionated. Mm. As the question is on how impartially you express your opinion. And whether you sort of express your opinion, your opinions on, on, on everything that you see or you, you only advance uh, your, your own political agenda. At some points, I was, I was trying to be um, impartial by being hyper opinionated. And that, that kind of works to an extent. I mean, you, you do ruin your reputation in, in some way. You gain other parts of the audiences and, uh, and perhaps you gain audiences that are, more valuable. And the last thing that, that's important uh, to say about Twitter, especially about Twitter and to a lesser extent about other social networks, it is um, an instrument of manipulation by partisan uh, groups, by um, governments, by intelligence services, and, and by uh, partisan groups within different nations. So the, if I wanted, if, if my goal was to just to increase the audience or uh, increase the followership um, to, you know, million, then uh, you just stick with one of the information bubbles and you constantly every day confirm their bias. And that's easy to do. Right. 
see it every day. And that's that's uh, that's what uh, quite a few notable um, figures commenting on on Russia and Ukraine in particular. They have chosen that um, activist path. Once you clash with mainstream agendas, um, with the agendas in, in different information bubbles, you become an instant um, enemy. Then people like uh, out there, they are there to destroy you. And I had some uh, some some really uh, sort of devastating clashes with, uh, particularly with people who who fancy themselves to be uh, liberals and fancy themselves to be uh, uh, to essentially have the same political views as as they think I have. Yeah, well, you've disappointed them or <laughs> surprised them, I suppose, right? Well, I uh, I guess I'm uh, I'm surprising them by by insisting on being a journalist, by insisting that my uh, my first and foremost identity as a journalist it's, it's definitely by far higher than any of my you know national and uh, ethnic identities which which are generally not very high uh, on, on, on on my agenda uh, and um, that's what I'm striving for and that's that's of course it's a slightly utopian and idealistic but uh, I'm still I'm still afloat <laughs> I'm trying to wrap my head around this approach that as you've described it would you say that you're being a journalist on Twitter insofar as you are sort of interrogating all information that you can get your hands on and, and various opinions, even ones you might not agree with. And then you're kind of projecting honestly how you perceive them. And that includes your opinion, but it's a form of reporting insofar as you are, you're not limiting what your, the, the terms of your discussion to say, you know, the kind of consensus of the mainstream or whatever. Is that right? Yes, today's journalists, because because journalists operate in this uh, situation of being constantly threatened of uh, libel suits and of uh, being accused of uh, partisanship or non-impartiality, that uh, turns um, classical professional journalism into a kind of kabuki theater. It is really formalist. The stories read as uh, legal documents, as contracts. They're really difficult to comprehend, and especially when it comes to investigations. I find most investigations that are done um, professionally, I would say they are extremely unreadable. Mm -hmm. And that actually, there is there is a great contrast with um, Alexei Navalny's investigations, which are totally comprehensible. Yeah. And the reason for that is that Navalny is a partisan actor and he doesn't care about all this um, stuff about impartiality or libel suits. He, he actually makes it in the, in the most uh, accessible and uh, entertaining uh, manner possible. He uses jokes and stuff too. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And that said, uh, I'm not suggesting that uh, journalists should take the path of Navalny. But there is, there is an issue, there is an issue about uh, journalists being not uh, accessible for broad public. And the impact of that is that uh, major stories, uh, and I'm now talking about this um, post-Soviet space about Ukraine and Russia. Major stories are not being told properly. They're not being visualized properly. At the end of the day, when you talk to the audiences, you find that uh, perceptions are, well, surreal, fantastic. It happens because of mm, because of how the journalism uh, journalists have to deliver their work. It also happens uh, because of the. Uh, you know, financial crisis in, in journalism today and that uh, editors um, 
And owners of media outlets mandate that uh, essentially um, journalists need to confirm uh, audiences' biases rather than, instead of telling the story. That's that's another problem. Well, speaking of of libel, you actually you got into it on Twitter about uh, a tweet by Joe Biden's Russia guy, Michael Carpenter, who suggested that Navalny. Here, I have the quote right here. He said Navalny has Krisha, you know, protection that's allowed him to rumple feathers in a way that would have gotten most others killed. And you you objected to this tweet. You, you said it was potentially libelous. And I'm wondering, could you go into some detail about where the problem is with this? Because I know that Mark Galliotti then responded saying, well, this is a general term. It's not so outlandish. But you you took issue with using the word Krisha. I think it's pretty clear for any Russian speaker that uh, Krisha is, uh, is a derogative term. And uh, it uh, squarely relates to criminal activities or to organized crime uh, uh, and uh, corruption at the, uh, at the top of the um, government hierarchy. So, no, there is, there is no broader meaning of the word Krisha that is not um, offensive for Navalny in this case. And, um, and despite the fact that uh, Carpenter was... Uh, uh, Margalotti basically uh, offered Carpenter a way out and, uh, and Carpenter jumped on it. But uh, if you go back to the original Twitter and uh, look at it, uh, it was meant to offend. It was meant to suggest that uh, Navalny is a marionette of some forces. And uh, why, why I reacted in this way is because uh, this narrative of Navalny having a creation, Navalny having uh, some protector, curator, at the top of the Russian leadership. It is a narrative that was um, conceived by Kremlin spin doctors a long time ago. I've been hearing it for the last seven or eight years. There was this talk about two FSB generals, Kuwait and Navalny and so on. This is all the stuff is, um, is out there in order to compromise Navalny. In the same way, there was this, um, one of the Kremlin spin doctors managed to publish an op-ed in Jerusalem Post, quoting uh, fake posts allegedly written by Navalny, which sounded anti-Semitic. And out of that uh, op-ed, they have created this whole narrative, a very persistent narrative, that Navalny is um, anti-Semite. So this is very similar. And it's, um, it's funny, but it's also very symptomatic that uh, somebody who claims to be a uh, extremely anti-Putin, claims to be a fighter against this regime. He would repro- reproduce those, um, those narratives uh, created by the Kremlin. Do you consider it totally implausible that there is anybody in a position of power within the government who essentially protects Navalny? Possibly, not, I'm not, not suggesting that Navalny is working with that person, but that because a part of, the, part of the argument that Carpenter seemed to be making, and one that I've seen elsewhere, is that Navalny hasn't been thrown in jail, not just because they're afraid of the reaction from civil society, but because what he does suits the interests of various people. And maybe not, it's not, it's not one person all throughout this, this time, but there's, you know, a, a kind of parade of groups that can benefit from feeding Kompromat or just having him publish Kompromat that he finds on his own. Is that, do you think that's just totally, just, that's just a way to smear Navalny? Or is there some evidence to suggest, or it just makes sense that that could be happening in part? Well, uh, I mean, first of all, Michael Carpenter has no idea. This is not uh, the person I would go and ask uh, whether Navalny has some sympathizers in the Kremlin or not. It's just a person who has absolutely no sources 
uh, no uh, knowledge on on that. But you've you've seen you've seen this you've seen this theory promoted elsewhere too. I mean, I I feel like I've heard it from people who are possibly better informed, and I'm not suggesting they have evidence, but the idea seems to appeal to people who do follow this world. And so it doesn't seem outlandish on the face of it, but what do you think? Well, uh, Putin's, Putin's regime is uh, comprised of conformists. It is comprised of people who are sitting on two chairs. Many uh, major figures in Putin's regime, absolutely the same people who participated in the Democratic Revolution in 1991, uh, who were liberal politicians, He's the, the guy who is overseeing the crackdown, he led a liberal party together with Boris Nemtsov 20 years ago. Kiryanka? Sergei Kiryanka, yeah, exactly. And Putin himself, he was, uh, he was part of the uh, anti-communist coalition in 1991, being deputy uh, mayor in St. Petersburg with uh, Sabchak being one of the main leaders of, of this uh, revolution. So, of course, these people, there, there are many people who either secretly sympathize with uh, Navalny, who possibly reach out to him. The thing is that uh, we, we don't know. Navalny, Navalny knows that, and, uh, and, possibly, uh, and possibly somebody somebody in the Kremlin knows that, but I, I'm not sure about it. The, the issue is about narratives and how these narratives work in the, in the information space today. I believe that uh, the whole point of Carpenter saying that is uh, to undermine, uh, was to undermine Navalny, essentially. And, uh, and to undermine this protest in, in Moscow. And I can speculate on his uh, reasons for, for doing so. What I can be sure about is that uh, he has uh, no reason at all to, to say that Navalny has a Krisha. And also the other thing is that uh, Krisha is, is a term of entirely of criminal character. Back in the 90s and, and also today. The meaning is broader, but the meaning is criminal nevertheless. In a recent article for Al Jazeera, I think it was, you said that the outcome of the protests in Moscow depends largely on the future of the West's right-wing populism. And I'm curious, what did you mean by that? Because I have kind of an idea, but it didn't seem like you had time to get into it. But it's an interesting idea, so I was hoping you could unpack it now. Right. Well, it's, it's not so much about the future of the Western uh, right-wing uh, populism as about the future of West of the West itself. And right-wing populism is, is of course, is a, a large part of that. There is a huge difference between uh, the West uh, that existed, that um, Russia and the former Soviet Union faced in 1991, and the West uh, Russians are facing now. You probably saw today that uh, the majority leader in the House of Representatives uh, endorsed Russian protests today. And the reception in Russia was, um, uh, was probably not what he expected. There is, there is a certain grade of toxicity in, uh, in the Western support to, to the protesters. And they wouldn't really welcome it uh, that much because, uh, because the motives uh, behind this support is, is unclear really. So what I'm saying is that uh, the West used to be this uh, major role model for people fighting for freedom in Russia and the former Soviet Union. That was the West of 1991. The West uh, of uh, uh, Donald Trump, of Brexit, of Kaczynski brothers, of uh, Orban, of Salvini in Italy cannot be a role model. And to an extent, 
Russia, as I see it, Russia is in the vanguard of, or at least the Russian protesters, protesters in Moscow, they are in the vanguard of a global struggle against this uh, onslaught of far-right populism. Are you saying then that the Russian authorities in you know, Moscow City Hall and the Kremlin represent right-wing populism then? Well, uh, Putin definitely does represent right-wing populism. And uh, Russia was, uh, Russia, of course, is a, is a country that lived uh, through a hundred years of shared genocide. It, uh, it was, um, uh, democratic Russia was vulnerable to this uh, onslaught from the outset. Uh, there was a broad democratic uh, coalition in 1991. That's when Russian Maidan happened. There was this broad coalition of um, liberals, uh, all sorts of anti-communists, including um, including the far right and including Vladimir Putin. So that uh, that coalition collapsed in 1993, and already in 1993, we in Russia we already had the far right populism. We had Zhirinovsky party winning half of the Duma. His his party came first in the election, uh, despite expectations, despite um, opinion polls. And um, from that point on, Russia was in the vanguard of this uh, of this wave. There was the National Bolshevik Party, which preceded many many things that you have now on 4chan and 8chan. You know, in terms of uh, trolling, in terms of connecting in, in supposedly incompatible uh, symbols. And in the case of National Bolshevik Party, they they actually took the the banner, the fascist banner, Hitler's banner. And in the, um, in the circle in the middle, they put the hammer and sickle instead of swastika. I guess what, what we saw on the internet, uh, uh, 10 years later or 15 years later, that, uh, very, very much uh, grew out of it. And in Russia itself, much of it grew out of, um, out of punk culture of the nineties with, uh, figures like, um, Igor Lietov and uh, Grazdanska Barona, the, the band. And of course, uh, Eduard Limonov. But yeah, I think I think Russia was was the first to to be engulfed by this uh, wave of far-right populism, and uh, Putin, um, as you know, is a Frankenstein of uh, created by political technologists by by spin doctors. He um, embodies uh, this trend very much. And of course, of course, what what Russia produces traditionally, historically, is is really grotesque. It is a very grotesque image of what later happens in the West. Russian communism was grotesque compared to, you know, socialist and communist movements in the West. But um, it is it is a thing of the of the same nature. So, as much as Russia was in the vanguard of this um, uh, far right wave, I think uh, to the same extent these uh, protesters in Moscow. Who are, by now, it is a very distilled, uh, liberal movement. You know, the nationalists and the left wings, they, they, they've fallen off since Balotna. This is, this is probably the vanguard of, uh, people that are moving in, in the opposite direction. That's, that's the, um, that's the response, the reaction to, to, to the, uh, to the far right. Do you think the liberals have it in them to, I mean, toppled the regime sounds like hyperbole, but do you think that they have any kind of revolutionary activity in their bones or are they hardwired to be too pacifist and too legalistic? Because the recent piece you have in Al Jazeera sort of implies as much, but it doesn't necessarily say that they can't change. And then the other question I had was, do you think the current regime or the current structure of government that Russia has 
should it fall, would it fall to something like a popular movement you've described, or would it be elite schisms and that kind of thing? Well, I, I wouldn't make any forecasts. Not about Russia, anyway. <laughs> sure, that's that's safe. <laughs> <laughs> no, but um, I think uh, what's, what's important about this protest movement is that uh, it is trying to do what nobody has done. And uh, in terms of its uh, pacifism, it is the essence of the movement. It is the regime that is extremist and that is, uh, to an extent, terrorist because they're, they're using terror against the uh, protesters. It is the protesters who are on the legal side and they want to bring the regime onto the legal side. They don't really want to topple this regime. They don't want uh, to hang Putin on the lamppost. They want Putin to compete in, in an honest election. They essentially, this, this uh, movement is about normality and about restoring normality. And I think it is, uh, it is a very important feature of this movement that it is uh, counter-revolutionary, anti-revolutionary. By no means it is anything like Maidan. And, and I think uh, that it is the strength of this movement. It is something that could probably achieve tangible results at the end of the day. Because we, we, we see what happened to Maidan, we, five years after the revolution, we, we don't really see any tangible results, neither in terms of economy nor in terms of developing, development of Ukrainian democracy. Hopefully with this new president, there will be something, but I don't know. That's my interview with Lenia Dragozin, a journalist with years of experience reporting from Russia, Ukraine, and Eastern Europe. In the description of this episode, you'll find hyperlinks to Leonid's Twitter profile and his recent article at Al Jazeera. If you enjoyed this interview and like listening to this podcast, please consider skipping over to patreon.com backslash Kevin Rothrock, where you can make a contribution. Thanks to everybody already pitching in. By the way, I say this always, I'm going to say it again. I'm happy to get feedback on Twitter or anywhere you can contact me if ever you have a comment or a question about the show. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time. Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля.